God, we thank you that the words that we sing this morning are true. They are your truth from your word. God, we thank you for everything that your sacrifice means to us, that, that you considered us worthy, that you considered that pain was worthwhile when you looked at us. God, we just stand before you this morning and just say thank you. Thank you for doing what we could never do. Thank you for paying the price that we could never pay. Thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. And God, we thank you that when you look at us, you just see Jesus. God, we thank you for loving us in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to church. Take a moment to say a very COVID-safe g'day to somebody around you. And while that's happening, I'll be um, just saying a special good day to our people online. So welcome to church this morning. Um, if you could take a moment to check in to the online service, that would really, really help us. So wherever you're watching from this morning, a very special welcome to you. Gosh, you guys in the room were fast this morning. <laughs> oh, that was amazing. Well done, you. Um, anyway, welcome to church this morning. If it's your first time, a very special welcome to you. We'd love to get to know you better over a cup of tea or coffee, which we can do in a very safe way in the hall next door. So take a right as you leave the worship centre and we would love to meet you in there. While I'm talking to you, you online people, but also people in the room, you might be able to fill in a Connect card or a giving card. So you can find those cards on the Church Centre app if you have that available on your phone. Everybody in this room should be checked into our um, check-in system, but also you should have done the QR code on your way in, and I trust you people to have done the right thing. If you didn't do it on the way in, please do it on the way out. If we don't have your details, we absolutely need to have them, so make sure that you do that on the way out. Um, our offering, uh, we don't pass things around anymore. Gone are the days of passing anything to anyone. Um, but we have an offering box as you leave the worship centre on the back wall there if you brought an, a physical offering. Um, Youth and SBC Kids is on holidays. Um, so they'll be back in Term 3. So no youth uh, or SBC Kids on um, today. We've got some colouring sheets and some activity sheets uh, at the back. I think all the kids have found them already. But if they haven't, um, you can either sit at the table or grab a clipboard and go back to your, your seat. Um, Crash is on for the little ones as well. So I should have said that. This Saturday, we have a young adults games night at the church. How exciting. Um, so we'll make it look pretty for you out in the foyer. And so, yeah, come along. Make sure you register for that. Again, use the Church Centre app or uh, one of the links that has been shared already um, via the newsletter. And uh, come along on Saturday night. You can either bring games if you've got cool games. If not, John McLaren has enough for the whole church to play a game. Um, so, yeah, just come along. Bring yourselves, bring a snack, and uh, just join in and have some fun together. Young adults, not us oldies. We don't get to come. Um, 
All right, so we're just going to spend some time in prayer together. We've got a number of people on our prayer list at the moment. Um, and uh, so I'll just read them out to you. You may or may not know them, but anyway, helpful to have their names uh, as we're going to pray for them. So Nathan and Nathan's home from hospital um, now and uh, having a little spell at home before returning to Melbourne for treatment. Uh, Rod is at home. Same, same deal. Um, Nancy and Heather Alexander this, this week had a fall and broke their arms separately, like, Anyway, um, so we can be praying for both of those. Um, Heather is actually here this morning because she is an unstoppable force. And despite having only one arm, she baked muffins for our Alpha Day yesterday. So, um, legend. And I'd say that having a broken arm would make about 10 ministries in our church suffer, except that it doesn't stop her, so it doesn't... Um, um, so Nancy's still in hospital, so we can be praying for Nancy as she um, heals, um, and Spencer as well. So we can be holding all of these people up in prayer. Um, and I've said it before and I'll say it again. Sometimes I need to put my hands over my eyes when I pray because um, you need to look at the situation, but then you need to stop looking at the situation and you need to get your eyes up where they belong on God who can make a difference. So um, some of these situations, you need to press your hands pretty hard into your eyeballs um, while you focus on God and stop looking at everything that's going on. Um, so if that is helpful to you, cover your eyes while you pray. Um, I find it extremely helpful. And as we are lifting people in prayer to God, as like I, I have a picture of holding people up, like offering them to God when I pray. Um, as we do that, let's remember who we pray to. We pray to the God of Ephesians 3, who can do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. Not according to us, but according to his power that works in us. So let us bear that in mind um, as we pray. We can be praying for our Alpha course, which uh, we had a big day here yesterday. <laughs> it was a long session. Um, everyone did really well to stay with it. But we've got some precious people going through the Alpha course with us and uh, we just did the Holy Spirit weekend yesterday in one day. So uh, we can be praying for those. And just a quick word about the word Amen. Um, it is very easy to think that Amen is punctuation and you just say it at the end to say it's the end. But that's not what Amen means. Amen means I agree with that and let it be so and I'm praying that too. So you can say amen anytime during the prayer or anytime like when Tom's bringing the message this morning. If he says something you agree with, you can say amen to that. Um, so yeah, not everyone knows that, like what amen means. So let's stand and we'll join together in prayer for some of our precious people. Um, and we can say amen together. So when you say amen, if, if you're saying it like that, I agree with that. I'm praying that too. You won't say it in a real dismissive way. You'll say it in a real um, positive, agreeing way, right? Okay, so let's pray together. God, we thank you so much. We thank you um, just for being the creator God who created everything. God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy which changes everything for us. God, we thank you for your love 
for your extravagant love, for the way that you love us so completely that when you look at us, we can feel it on our skin. For your love which you pour into the deepest part of us. For your love which overflows and we can generously share that with other people around us. God, we thank you for your love which makes our eyes sparkle and our faces shine as we share your love with people around us. God, we thank you for your love which changes us. God, we thank you for your amazing sacrifice that brought us back. And God, as we lift up our precious ones before you this morning, God, we know that you know everything about them. You know every cell in their body because you put it there. You know far better than any doctors what is going on with them right now. And God, we just ask for your continued healing in their bodies. God, we thank you for healing that has already come. And we ask for that to continue in Jesus' name. God, we know the God that we serve. We know that you are a powerful God, that you can do impossible things. And we ask you for that for our precious ones this morning. God, we thank you for our lovely Alpha crew. Um, We thank you for the changes that you are uh, bringing about in their lives through this terrific ministry. God, we thank you um, for Alpha, for the helpful way that it explains who you are to people who don't know you yet. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that as we come together as your family in this place, God, that it is a privilege to bring an offering of praise and worship to you. God, we thank you for your love again. We thank you for everything that you've ever done for us and everything that you are in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Heavenly Father, you are so, so good to us. God, we thank you for your amazing love for us this morning. We thank you for the grace that you have given to us so that we may be free of sin, so that we may be free of the clutches of death and we may be raised to newness of life with you. God, would you help us to see this life that you have for us this morning, this incredible, invigorating, eternal life that you have for us. God, we thank you that you are so good once more. God, would you be with us this morning as I open the word? Would you be speaking to our hearts from Esther chapter 9? And God, would you impress on us the importance of following you this morning, of being obedient to your voice? In your mighty, mighty name and in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Grab a seat, everybody. Grab a seat. Welcome to church. So wonderful to see you all here today, and there are quite a number of you here. This um, removing of restrictions is wonderful. It's a very great process to be in rather than the, the opposite one where we sort of slowly get less and less people in the building. So it's wonderful to see you all here this morning. Um, I was debating how to start this message. I mean, if you've been reading along in the, um, the Bible reading plan with Esther, you'll know that this, this couple of chapters that I'm covering here, Esther chapter... Esther chapter 9 and chapter 10, they're quite victorious um, chapters, so I was going to do the whole like run off the stage, give everyone a high five sort of thing, um, but then I realised that that might make me a super spreader, so 
I should probably just not do that. <laughs> um, anyway, it's, it's very good to have you in the house this morning. We're going to be looking at Esther chapter 9 and chapter 10 as we round up this series on the book of Esther. And it's such a funny little book that we find in, um, in, in the Bible. Uh, it's troubled scholars throughout time in regards to whether this is an actual story or whether it's just a bit of oral tradition that's been made up and sort of just has a good lesson in it for us. Um, I'll give you two very different perspectives on it. So the, the reformer, Martin Luther, um, he was incredibly, incredibly hostile to this book. He didn't like it at all. He said that he wished it uh, did not exist. He said he wished the book of Esther did not exist. But on the other hand, as I move the mic to my other hand, uh, you have this uh, medieval Jewish scholar uh, named uh, Malmonides, who considered Esther the most important book in the Bible after the Pentateuch. So after Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, the book of the law for Jews, he considered this the most important book. So he got some very varied um, perceptions of this. But I think um, what really stands out to, to a reader of Esther is quite how Jewish this book is. It's an incredibly... Jew-centred book, like it's very focused on the fate of the Jews and the story of the Jews as they live out in exile. So it's no wonder that Martin Luther can't really find much value in it. Um, he says some strong things about different books of the Bible. It's not that he's got a vendetta out on, on Esther or anything like that. But it's, it's certainly useful for us today and I, I want to show you uh, quite how useful it is for us this morning. So let me um, begin by just covering off uh, Esther chapter 10. I don't normally like to do this because I do believe that all of Scripture is God-breathed and useful for, for teaching and, and reproof and all those good things. Um, but ch- chapter 10 of Esther is really just a bit of a, a summary. The author's trying to legitimise this um, document for us. He talks about King Xerxes um, and the tax that he puts on throughout the, the empire to its distant shores, which, I mean, we could focus on that this morning if you want. We're right at the end of the financial year. It's a very relevant um, sermon for this season of life. But then it goes on to imitate some of the, the other stories that you find in uh, 1 Kings and 2 Kings in the Bible, where it says, oh, Mordecai and Esther, they did so many other things. Uh, you can read about it in this other document that, that exists out there somewhere, which no one has been able to find, actually, which is very interesting. Um, but it's it's really just closing off this this document, showing that, that it is official and it has got a bit of a, a form to it. So I won't be focusing on chapter 10 so much. Um, I'm sure you've covered it in your uh, your reading plan, so you can judge whether I'm right or wrong to, to dismiss it so quickly. Um, but it, it does show that, that Mordecai and Esther, that they are the good guys in this story, or the good people in this story, I, I should say. Um, and that there was such a good view of them um, by the, the Persian people in this story. But anyway, let's read uh, some Bible. Stop me um, jabbering on about about whatever I'd, I'm talking about. Anyway, uh, so Esther chapter 9, verses 20 to 28. If you wanted to open your Bibles up to there, if you have them here, the, everything's going to be on the screen behind me. Uh, but let's get into it. So Esther 9, verse 20. 
Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month where their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the poor, that is, the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head and that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim from the word poor. Because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. So we, we come to Esther, we come to the sto- this last little bit of the story, and we see quite a celebration, quite a victorious section of the book. The, it's all getting wrapped up in a nice little bow. The, the Jews are, are winning this war that has been sort of intimated i guess throughout the throughout the book so far and i i think there's a few interesting things that we can see throughout the the entire chapter here so in uh in verse one we we see uh verse one we see that it's been a few months since the events of chapter eight so chapter eight happens in the, the third month of the year so let's just pretend that that's march um uh and then chapter nine starts off by giving this giving us this uh, in the 12th month on the 13th day of the, the month of Adar. And so we've got this nine-month gap between chapters 8 and chapter 9. And so the writer of the book goes on to, to say what was, was happening in those 12 months. So if you look down in uh, verse 3 there, we see that the political powers have not just stayed stagnant in this nine months. The, the political powers have all swung in favour of this increasingly powerful Mordecai. So you've had nine months of um, no Haman. So Haman was the, the 2IC, I guess, of the Persian Empire, but now he's gone and Mordecai's in his place and people are starting to help the Jews and they're starting to swing in favour of the Jews. And you really get this sense that there's no neutral people in the Persian Empire anymore. Either you, you hate the Jews and you're going to rise up against them on this, on this day, on the 13th of the, the 12th month, or you are actively helping them and actively making sure that you're on the right side of history. And it appears to, to be that everyone knows who's going to win. Um, everyone knows who's going to win this war. Anyway, let's find out who does win the war, um, the way that the, the writer tells it. So uh, in verse 5, we see that the day finally arrives. Here's the day of all the fighting. Here's the day when you know, two sides are going to collide. The people who hate the Jews are going to win, or are the Jews going to be able to defend themselves successfully? So let's read what it says in verse 5 there. 
The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing them and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. They did what they pleased to those who hated them. So it's very clear what happens here. And if you read on in the, the next few verses, it tells you the stories of how many people have died and, and, and little different bits and pieces of, of the report of what's happened. Um, and it can be a little bit confronting. I mean, almost 76,000 people are reported to have died in this, in this conflict. Uh, apparently, no Jewish people have died. Apparently, they went off completely unscathed. Um, but you, you might think that there's, that's a, a big number. And I think to, to us, it is a big number. It's, a, it's an alarming number. 76,000 people died basically in, in one day. Um, but given that the, the population of the Persian Empire was at a very conservative estimate, 17 million, it's not like half the people died um, and just dropped dead in one day. Um, and, and the king doesn't seem to find this to be an issue at all. He hears the report of the people who died in the capital and he goes, oh, 500 people dead in, right under my nose. I wonder, wonder what happened to, to everyone else. That's, that sounds interesting. And then he just goes on. He lets them keep killing more people the, the following day. It's, it's very interesting, the lack of concern King Xerxes all the way through the book has for, for people's lives, the life of his own queen in chapter 1, if you remember. Um, even Haman's life is 2IC. He doesn't just say, oh, he did a bad thing, let's ch- chuck him in jail. He's like, no, nah, that's it, let's kill him straight away. Um, it's very, very interesting, the lack of concern he has for their life. If you read it in verse 5 there, just backtracking a little, you'll notice that there's, uh, there's a line there which says that they did what they pleased to those who hated them. I think it sort of um, disrupts our Western sensibilities when we hear that did what they pleased sort of line. You, you start thinking of undue cruelty and, uh, I don't know, like, did they torture them? Did they, you know, make sport of them in the, in the battle? But what this really is, is just simply... Uh, hearkening back to the words of the king to Haman. When Haman was saying to the king, oh, the Jews are terrible, we need to get rid of them, the king says to Haman, the people are yours to do as you please with. And so the the writer is saying, instead of the people who hated the Jews doing as they pleased to the Jews, instead of Haman doing as he pleased, it was now the Jews who were doing as they pleased to those who hated them. Um, A very important refrain that you see all the way through this battle report, I guess, um, is the words, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. And now, if you know your Bible fairly well, you know Israel has a bit of a, a sketchy history in terms of obeying um, commands to, to not lay hands on plunder, to not take any material gain away from, from victories. Um, but, but this time, it's a little different. I mean, Mordecai writes the, the law so that they are allowed to take plunder. They're allowed to take their um, the defeated foe's land and money and materials and, and, and livestock, but they don't do it this time. I think it's not anything spiritual going on, but rather it just shows the, the intent of, of the, the Jews while they are defending themselves. It's simply that they are defending their right to exist. They're defending um, themselves. They're not out there for material gain. There's no corruption happening. It's not like I'm a Jew and my neighbour has helped me out very much. He's given me a sword. He's said, good luck on, on the battle. And I've just said, oh, but you've got such a nice bit of land over there. And then I just go over to his house, stab him and say, oh, he, he rose up against me. He hated me. 
um, let me just take his, take his land now as, as mine. There, there was none of this sort of corruption because no one took anything away from this. This is purely just defending themselves. So I, I hope that gives you a little bit of um, backstory as to the, the first section of, um, of this chapter, but I really want to start drawing down on a couple of bigger themes that we see in here. Like, like I said, um, the whole book of, of Esther is quite Jewish, and I think this chapter in particular when it's talking about this festival of Purim, this Feast of Purim, which is being inaugurated, is an incredibly Jewish part of this book. I mean, if we were to read it and take away the direct application, it should be that we should celebrate this festival because we believe in that God, right? That, that should be the direct application. But this is kind of a, a national identity thing. We're not going to start celebrating uh, Purim because I would imagine that a lot of us aren't Jews. I didn't want to say absolutely none of us are, maybe there, there are some um, here this morning, but I reckon 99% of us at least are, are not going to be Jewish. So we really don't have any right to this festival or any right to, I don't know, kind of the, the direct application of this chapter. So we've got to look past that a little bit, we've got to see what biblical themes are there to draw out so that we can see them and join in with them as well. So I'd love for you to, to read uh, to, to cast your eyes to verses 17 and 18. And so this is when the fighting has stopped. The, the battle reports all happened, and this is where the, the description of the fighting stopping happens. And it says that the Jews in the, in the provinces and the Jews in the citadel rested. That they rested. And so I think this is a very significant theme to pick up on, this rest that is experienced by the people. So rest is built into the Jewish legal framework through uh, the commands to keep the Sabbath holy. Like this is sort of part of their, their tenets on what it means to be a Jew is a lot of it revolves around rest. Um, so if you uh, read Exodus chapter 20 verses 8 to 11, which is in the middle of the, the Ten Commandments, it says this, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So th- this comes from um, the initial creation story. This is creation at its most ideal. Everything is done Everything is finished, nothing needs attention, and everything is working as it should. Everything is working as it should. There's no enemy at the doors once God has finished creating. There's no striving towards perfection after God has finished creating because everything is already complete. And so he commands the Jews to remember this creative work by observing the Sabbath, by resting themselves and remembering this ideal state of being. And so the rest from the fighting that we see in Esther 9 isn't just this momentary break in the proceedings. This is not a respite for God's people. This isn't a ceasefire in the, in the war. No bell has been rung signalling the end of the round and the coming of many more. This is victory. This is a return to the way things ought to be. No enemy threatening, nothing needing attention, Everything working as it should. And this should resonate with us all as Christians as well. I mean, this is what has been promised to us who follow Jesus. 
final and eternal rest. Everything as it should be. So let me read to you a couple of verses from Revelation, um, from Revelation chapter 21. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. So although that passage doesn't say the word rest in it, it doesn't include the word rest, it still carries that sort of vibe, doesn't it? It still carries that energy with it. Or did you feel panicked when I said that the dwelling place of God would be amongst the people? Were you frightened when I said that there would be no more death or mourning or crying or pain? Were you ready to make a bolt for the door and run away when you read that the thirsty will receive the water of life without price? The big question that we really have is, has this rest come now? Are we supposed to be living in this rest right now? Um, If we overlay the story of Esther over the story of salvation, are we the, the resting, celebrating, joyous people of God, all things as they should be, nothing needing attention. I just want to give you a, a little survey to, um, to see the answer to this question. How many of you are feeling stressed right now? And I'm not talking about like how many of you felt stress in the, the last week or so, how many have felt, how, of you have felt stress in the last month. I'm talking about right this second, how many of you feel like there's something to do later on today or that there's work to be done, something to be perfected in your life hands up, who's, who's feeling that way? A few of you, I mean, all I needed was one to show that, that the rest hadn't, hadn't come yet. So it's safe to sh- assume that we aren't in this restful, victorious stage of living. We're still in the middle of the fight. The 13th day of the 12th month, rather than the victorious and restful 14th and 15th days, which are full of celebration and full of victory. This begs so many questions, doesn't it? I've, I know that I was coming up with plenty just on my own as I was writing this. So who is the enemy then, if we're supposed to be fighting? How do we even fight this enemy? And how can we be confident of victory? What is our assurance that we are going to win this fight? So the enemy is not a person or a group of people anymore. Um, the Jews faced off against the people who hated them, but we do not fight against people these days. So Ephesians 6.12, which Brad read out for us last week, says that we do not struggle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark age. We fight against sin and death. We fight against sin and death. 
And I know what you're thinking. Didn't Jesus fight against sin and death on the cross? I mean, didn't Jesus win that fight against sin and death by being raised from the dead? So why do we still need to fight these same enemies? So I'm going to answer that by asking my own question. Haman is dead in chapter 8. I mean, he's hung on his own gallows. So why did the Jews still have to fight in chapter 9, nine months after Haman dies? Because the enemies of the Jews are still out there. They're still going to attack them on the 13th of the 12th. Although victory over sin was won on the cross, look around. I mean, don't even look around, look within. Isn't sin still pervading every part of life? Isn't sin still running rampant throughout society? I mean, don't we feel the sting of death in the lives that we lead still? I think one of the biggest unsaid teachings uh, from preachers in, in Western societies is that you have to war against the sin in your life daily. You have to war against the sin in your life daily. And I reckon the enemy's biggest weapon um, in these days is the lie that the fight is over. You don't have to raise up arms against your sin anymore, the enemy's going to say. You don't have to deal with its presence in your life because it's, it's, it's already done away with, isn't it? But the cross was such a big victory. What harm can sin have in your life anymore? What harm can it have in your relationships with other people? What harm can it have in your relationship with God? What impact is that going to have on your eternity if it's supposedly already defeated? The enemy is going to try and take as many down with him as he can. And that means us today. That means me and you. So heed the gospel warnings against laziness and be actively at war against the sin in your life. Seek it out and destroy it where it stands. Be at war with your nature. As Galatians 5 verse 17 puts it, the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh they are in conflict with one another so that you are unable to do whatever you want i'll read you a quote from from john owen who is a 17th century puritan and he writes this be killing sin or it will be killing you be killing sin or it will be killing you we do fight however with the perspective of the cross Dear Christian, you do not have to fear your enemy as if Jesus has left you defenseless in this fight. He's given us his spirit to aid us in this fight, transforming us into his likeness, not delighting in sin anymore, but delighting in righteousness. So we do not struggle hopelessly, but we struggle hopefully, anchored in the hope of the cross and in the resurrection and looking forward to that promised day of rest which is coming for those who follow Jesus. I don't say any of this to discourage you, by the way. I don't want to make it seem like it's all doom and gloom. You've got so much work to do when you leave um, today. But we can be confident in our victory over sin. The victory won by Jesus on the cross will translate into our own victory over sin. So long as you are committed to picking up your weapon and fighting in the power of that finished work. Hopeful for the day when we can put that weapon down again. Nothing to do, no enemy at the gates, 
victorious rest. Rightio, I've only got a few more things to say. A lot of you are probably groaning internally. Uh, Believe me, I I cut a lot out um, already. Anyway, we're going to move on to this second section of of Esther chapter 9. So in verses 24 and 25 there, we we see this summary of, of Purim, but this whole last section has to do with this feast that's being established for the Jews. This is a fairly repetitive section, but it's the big climax of the book of Esther. It's the, one of the big purposes for why it was written, is to, to say, and this is why after eight long chapters of, of dialogue that we celebrate Purim. You know, this is what we are remembering. And it, its purpose is to establish the guidelines uh, for Purim. So if you want to get a picture of what Purim is, I say Purim and, and Purim, I think the correct pronunciation is Purim, but if you hear me say the other one, just don't worry about it. Um, so if, if you want to get a picture of what Purim might be like, um, it would be as if um, the 2016 Western Bulldogs grand final had a baby with Christmas. That it'd be like they had a baby together. It's celebration, it's victory against the odds and presence. And presence. Um, th- this is coming from the like official guidelines for how to do Jewish things, the Talmud, if you are aware of that book. There are four key things that you have to do on Purim. One is to read through the story of Esther twice. So you read, read it once the night before, you read it once the day after, and you are to make as much noise as you possibly can to drown out the name of Haman whenever it appears. So this is where those little like spinning toys come in. That's, this is their purpose, is literally just to make noise enough to drown out the name Haman as you're reading Esther. Um, yeah, and so this gives you kind of picture. It's a little silly, it's a little over the top. It's not, you know, silly, silly, but it's purposeful silliness and over-the-topness. Um, the second thing you've got to do is give two, at least two substantial gifts of food away um, to other people, often this will be just side streets clogged. Everyone's buying food, not for themselves for Purim, but for other people for Purim. And it's designed to be like, I've got this food, I'm sharing it with you, join me in this celebration. And so people apparently on this day are just running around all over the place giving food away to everyone. And so you wouldn't buy food for yourself, you just buy it for everyone else and just expect a lot of food to be coming your way. Um, and it's all to be eaten on the day of Purim. Like, celebrate with me today. Don't leave it for tomorrow, but, but celebrate today. Um, the third thing is, same thing, at least two gifts of money or food to the poor. So the, um, that's the strict uh, guideline, but the, the cultural norm is every outstretched hand um, gets met. Like, every hand stretched out in need gets met with a gift of food or money. And once again, it's that inviting in, celebrate with me, today. Celebrate me with me today. And the fourth thing, and remember, this is the how to be, how to practice Judaism book. This is very technical stuff. This is very strict law stuff. The fourth thing that you have to do on Purim is you have to drink enough wine that you cannot tell the difference between blessed be Mordecai and cursed be Haman. This is how you celebrate Purim. This is over-the-top, victorious celebration. I was tempted to swap them around and just uh, pretend I'd made a mistake, but I didn't want anyone to think that I'd been celebrating Purim <laughs> before 11 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> uh, it's, it's in February as well, so I'd be a few months late. 
Anyway, anyway, uh, I think one striking thing to note about the brief, uh, about uh, this establishment of Purim in the text is the brief summary that's given to why we observe Purim or why the, the Jews would observe Purim. So if you look at me to 20, verses 24 and 25, it says this, for, the son of Ham- for Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews had plotted against them and had cast the poor, that is the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme that Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head and that he and his sons should be impaled upon poles. So I want you to take special note of that phrase, come back onto his own head or came back onto his own head. Um, This is not the only mention of this type of theme in the story. Um, if, uh, even in the chapter itself. If you look to verse 1, uh, later in the verse, it says that the, that the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand. Or in the ESV, it says it even better, it says the reverse occurred. Um, or in verse 22, it says, the month where their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. So this is another significant theme to pick up on in the story, this theme of reversal. And I think for us Christians, this resonates very highly with us. I mean, most of the gospel story can be summed up by this theme of reversal. Um, The the use of it in Esther shows God to be the um, controller of outcomes, however. So this is much like um, when Joseph says to his brothers in Genesis 50 verse 20, what you meant for evil, God has used for good. This is God in control of outcomes, not Haman in control of outcomes. So even though Haman thought he had control over the outcome, because he had discerned the will of the gods by casting this lot, you know, flipping a coin or rolling a dice and seeing when God wanted um, you to do something. Probably a little bit more complex than that. Um, But it was the God of Israel who truly knew the outcome. This is the reversal though. Haman thought he had discerned the time for the destruction of the Jews when really he had, ironically, determined the time of his own destruction. God has vindicated his name and his people in protecting them from the evil plans of Haman. So like I said, a lot of the gospel is summed up by this word reversal. When you see that word um, or see that theme being played out, that the very first thing we should think of as Christians is the resurrection. It should be the resurrection. This is the greatest sign of reversal that we have as Christians. So let me read to you Luke 24, just verse 5 though. Um, Right at the end there, I think it says, "In, In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the, for the living among the dead? So the women have gone to the tomb expecting to find dead Jesus still there so they could um, continue doing sort of burial stuff to him. But then they find these two angels there instead. No Jesus, two angels appear and they say, why do you look for the living amongst the dead? Why do you look for an alive person where a dead person should be? Reversal. Reversal, and I could go on and on about that. I'm not going to, but I, I honestly could summarise so much more of the gospel story with reversal. The upper hand that Satan thinks he has over God through the death of Jesus is completely undone when Jesus walks out of the grave. 
the greatest triumph of the enemy is turned is transformed into his greatest defeat and not only that it's changed into the greatest victory of Christ triumphing over the dead Jesus leads a host of captives away we are the spoils of Christ's victory over sin and death how great a hatred of sin must God have to send his one and only son to the cross for its defeat but how incredible a love of the sinner must God have to rescue us who nailed Jesus to the cross through our sin and to raise him back to life again so what does this grand reversal change for us so knowing that God is in charge of the outcomes and has rescued us from the plans of the enemy what what does that gain us if we are called to become more like Jesus every day then the answer is that we are called to be agents of reversal in our everyday lives we bring unexpected responses with us wherever we go whenever someone does something and expects judgment from us we give them grace instead when they expect hatred they receive love when they expect us to hold a grudge they receive forgiveness so think about how this might play out in your own situation what about the customers or the clients that come into work and how does re- reversal work for them when they annoy you or when they expect something from you and you, you give them something else i don't mean they expect in my situation uh, i work at a petrol station so i'm not going to say reversal works out they come wanting diesel and i give them unleaded petrol instead that's probably not the reversal that we're talking about but you know they're irritating or they're annoying what do i give them do i give them irritating and annoying back or do i give them love do i give them forgiveness for that irritation back what about the members of your own family how does reversal play out to them what about the teachers or the leaders in your life how might this attitude of reversal cause you to respond differently to them so this is not just towards the christians in your life uh, but towards those who do not know jesus yet also so not one over the the other but the same grace and the same reversed responses to everyone equally so this is living out the same peace and same celebration that we see in the words and the attitudes of Esther 9 in the, the words and the attitudes of Purim itself the celebration inviting others in to celebrate in this joyous victory by bringing them gifts of love and of grace and telling them about the goodness of the gospel so I'm going to read you a section of Psalm 68 as we end our time together this morning but let us go this week fighting this war against sin but confident in the finished work of the cross the power of the holy spirit working within us and the coming day of victorious rest for those who follow jesus let us respond to those in our lives out of the reverse state that we find ourselves in as christians telling of the good news of the gospel and inviting others in to experience this so let the psalm encourage you that we do not go out alone but that God himself daily bears our burdens as we do these things. So Psalm 68 just verses 17 to 20. The chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. 
the Lord has come from Sinai into his sanctuary. When you ascended on high, you took many captives. You received gifts from the people, even from the rebellious, that you, Lord God, might dwell there. Praise be to the Lord, to God our Saviour, who daily bears our burdens. Our God is a God who saves. From the Sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Amen. Amen.